Good evening. Is this okay? You guys can hear back there? Okay, good. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. This is the first time I've been here, although I have made connections uh, with the folks from here, and it's, it's really lovely to be here, so thank you. Um, my name is Elaine Donlan. I am a priest, an ordained priest from the Buddhist Church of San Francisco. It's a Jodo Shinshu uh, tradition out of Kyoto, Japan. And I'd like to begin uh, with a reading. This is um, from another priest in our tradition. Uh, Greg Creech, he wrote a, bo a book called Nikon. Um, it's called The Mysteries and Myths of Separation. We have invested a lifetime of attention and energy maintaining ourselves as separate and independent. We put up fences, we lock our doors, we attend to our needs and goals with certain confidence about the boundaries between us and not us. But as we reflect on ourselves, the nature of those boundaries become questionable. We begin to see that our bodies, our stuff, even our ideas, and our words are musical arrangements whose notes come from somewhere else. It is a bit shocking to have our basic identity questioned. It has implications that go far beyond what names appear on our business cards. What happens when we discover that we can't win an argument with a family member? What responsibilities arise when we become caretakers rather than owners of our stuff? How do we resolve the confusion that accompanies the awareness that the role of victim and that of perpetrator are not as black and white as we thought they were? What replaces the pride in our accomplishments when we become conscious of the web of people and things that made those accomplishments possible? We have developed a certain comfort with the illusion of separateness. It may please me to think that my life, my decisions, and my body are my own. It is my defense against others telling me what I should do. It is my defense against having to accept some responsibility for the problems of our society and our planet. But there is no real security to be found in this illusion of separateness. No peace, no truth. If we are willing to investigate our connectedness, a whole new experience of life unfolds. We feel supported and cared for. We feel related to people we have never met. Our extended family becomes everywhere. This path of connectedness can lead us to the doorstep, doorstep of faith. It can lead us to the doorstep of our true purpose in life. It can inspire us, delight us, and free us from the burden of self-importance. But first, we must let go of who we think we are. So again, it's lovely to be here. Um, I, I like this piece because this... Um, I think really speaks to my tradition, the Jodo Shinshu tradition. Um, this is um, really our practice in a nutshell. Um, our, I like to explain, well, I explain Buddhism as this great big tree. At the trunk of the tree are the Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, the teachings of the historical Buddhist Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, and the first major branch of the tree, Theravada tradition, the Path of the Elders, middle branch, of the tree is the path of the Bodhisattva, where my tradition comes from, as well as Zen. Um, and then the third branch is the Vajrayana, the path, the diamond path. And I, I see them having practice, actually, um, on the various branches, um, as basically, they're all expressions of the, the trunk of the tree, of the Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. They just look radically different and sound radically different, depending on what country these these traditions went into and how, it, you know, every culture, every, everywhere Buddhism went, it impacted the culture and the culture impacted it. So we have this beautiful tree full of branches, lush branches, with radically different um, practices. But they all fundamentally are the trunk of the tree. They express the Four Noble Truths Eightfold Path. And so our tradition, the Jodo Shinshu tradition, is the middle branch, the path of the Bodhisattva. And then there's a, another branch off of that, a twig, called Pure Land, which is based on the three Pure Land Sutras. And then off of that branch, there are um, a lot of different bran other branches that are the uh, respective traditions. So there's Pure Land in China, there's Pure Land in Korea, Pure Land in Vietnam, 
pure, pure land in um, uh, actually Tibetan uh, traditions. There's pure land in um, Japan. And within Japan, it's the largest um, tradition in Japan, uh, more temples than Zen even. Um, and it was brought over here by the immigrant, Japanese immigrant population. Our temple was founded in 1898 and um, predominantly a, an immigrant um, tradition, ethnic tradition. And um, later, after all of our congregation went into the, the camps during World War II, um, they came back, they lived in the temple, um, really keeping it a closed tradition. And it was really in the 70s, that in 80s, that the temple started to open their doors. Um, and people like B, who is a convert Buddhist, uh, was able to appreciate the teachings. And... Um, so when people ask me what we do, what our tradition does, because that seems to be the question whenever you meet a Buddhist, well, what's your practice? Um, and I, I think our, our practice, if I have to say what it is, it's our practice is gratitude. And so um, it's what we say is Namo Amida Butsu, which is I take refuge in Amitabha Buddha or Amida Buddha in, uh, what, in how we say it. Um, but really, Amitabha Buddha is a representation of boundless, immeasurable wisdom and compassion. So basically what we're saying is, I surrender, I surrender to this boundless wisdom and compassion. And I, I find that um, actually every Buddhist tradition involves a degree of surrendering, because isn't this what we're all doing, is, is really letting go, surrendering our self-cherishing, our ego? So many different ways to do that, so many different practices. Um, so in that respect, I think the tree really doesn't look all that different because we're all working on surrendering this self-centered, this, this self-cherishing. And when we think of the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha's enlightenment, it wasn't anything external. It was all internal. It was this fundamental shift in attitude, a fundamental shift in perspective. And so, regardless of what tradition we practice, I think that that's what it's about, fundamentally changing these negative, unhealthy habituations that we spent a lifetime developing, and we're spending a lifetime or, or two or three um, undoing them. So, um, our, our tradition, I, I like to say, is, is gratitude. And so, we say, Namo Amida Butsu, out of gratitude. Um, it's not... A mantra. It doesn't have any magical or special meaning. It is simply um, an expression from our heart uh, of gratitude and appreciation. And I would say, Namo Amida Butsu when I walked in the door. Uh, what a beautiful Dharma center. I say, Namo Amida Butsu when I see someone suffering. I, see, I say, Namo Amida Butsu when uh, I see something that just overwhelms me is so amazingly beautiful. And I say Namo Amida Butsu when I think that this is the most mundane moment. Nothing's happening. No reason to say it. For how could this moment be mundane? It's unrepeatable. It's so precious. So we say Namo Amida Butsu all the time. When we get together to do our services, we recite sutra chanting of the Three Pure Land uh, Sutras. Um, and we all recite or chant Namo Amida Butsu together. But really it's... Um, as you know with Buddhism, it's a 24-7 practice. And so uh, for us, it's 24-7. We are mindful thinking of Amida Buddha, uh, which means we're, we're, we're trying to recognize and appreciate the, the boundless wisdom and compassion that supports me all the time. I'm here not because of myself. I'm here because of an amazing, vast causes and conditions that have put me here people I know, people in my life that go back even before I was born, people who are responsible for building this vihara. So many people, so many causes and conditions that are responsible for me being here. And that's why I say our practice is a life of gratitude, because I say namo mirabutsu, namo mirabutsu, namanda for that. Yeah. So, um, my, as I was talking earlier when we were having tea, 
I was raised Catholic. I have I come from a very strong Catholic family. Twelve years of Catholic school. Um, made almost all the um, all the the sacraments. Um, I stopped after confirmation. And um, when I was seventeen, I decided um, I couldn't uh, I couldn't participate anymore. And my folks, I have really really loving open-minded parents and they um, supported me in my decision. I had a problem with their stance on homosexuality. I had a problem with their stance on uh, uh, birth control as well as female clergy or the lack of female clergy. And so my mom just said, find a, a spiritual tradition to ground you in. And so I, I practiced Zen. I discovered Buddhism actually in college. Um, I practiced Zen for a while. I practiced uh, Tibetan Buddhism for a long time. And, um, and I attended a funeral of a colleague of mine who happened to be a Jodashin Buddhist. And I walked in the door, and it was the most amazing funeral I had ever been to. It was such a joyous uh, celebration of her life. And the Dharma talk just rocked. And I thought, oh, this is a weird name for a Buddhist temple, Buddhist Church of San Francisco, but a really cool service. So I went back the next day and basically never left. And um, so grateful. Uh, and so I'm so grateful to Judy, because uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. Um, but that's, um, so it's a largely ethnic tradition. Majority of our members are Japanese Americans, but they've opened their doors, as I said, um, to convert Buddhists. And now this, there's a lot of transition going on in the temple, and it's really exciting, and uh, people are really supportive of it. Um, we still have amazing Japanese food all the time, um, but we also have this uh, influx of, of people from different backgrounds, different experiences coming in, and that's really celebrated, really celebrated. So um, I love visiting different Dharma centers. I love uh, practicing, doing, the, experiencing the different practices, and appreciating, appreciating that fundamentally it's the trunk of the tree, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. We just express it differently. We, we don't practice the, the Eightfold Path uh, per step, we in in our in the path of the Bodhisattva, it's the six paramitas, which really, if you break it down, are almost are not almost are interchangeable with the four noble truths. It's a lay version. So we, in in my tradition, we do not have uh, monastics. We're we're not a monastic. We're a clergy. So we're called. We're neither monk nor lay. We're in between. We're priest. We're we go through a um, pretty exhaustive. Um, Ordination is basically six to seven years with um, ordination culminating at our mother temple in Kyoto, Japan. Um, but we marry, we have kids, we have relationships, we are in this world, um, and we try to practice 24-7. Um, it's challenging, it's wonderful, um, it's... it's it's, it's hard, difficult and not. I, I had a student once who came to me and said, you know, she was a new student, and she said, this is so hard. I feel like I'm on a tightrope. I feel like I'm on a tightrope and I'm going to fall off. It's so, it's so hard to keep all the teachings together and, and to follow them. And I said, yeah, but you just have to remember that tightrope is only four inches from the ground. Just, <laughs> just get back on it. Just get back on it. And the longer you practice that tightrope, becomes like this a beam, a four but a two by four beam. And that two by four beam becomes a path. And that path eventually becomes the ground. Yeah. And that that's what it's like. And that's the to me the beauty of, of the teachings is that being able to just live the teachings. And so we're we're imperfect. I'm I'm imperfect. Um, but I just have to keep remembering that, you know, it's just four inches off the ground. You get back on. And um, I, I'm so grateful for the teachings. I am so grateful. Um, how are we doing on time? Tons of time. Tons of time. Okay. Um, so this idea of separation, um, what, what causes us to separate? Why do we separate? So the Buddha, I, I like to explain, talks about 
this openness. We we are the primordially, fundamentally, we are these open, loving, compassionate people. But what happens? We create this cocoon around ourselves. We can call it the, the three poisons, attachment, aversion, ignorance, or delusion. Right? We, we spend a lifetime. We, we learn this from our family. We learn from our culture, from our society, from our media. Just keep, create this cocoon and, and reinforce, support this identity of who I am. When fundamentally we are these open, interconnected, loving people. So this idea of separation is one that uh, we talk a lot about in our, in our practice. What separates us? Why are we separated? Why do we keep reinforcing this false sense of identity? Why do, I, why do I get upset when someone challenges me? Because they're challenging my false sense of identity that I've spent a lifetime promoting, solidifying, right? And so we look at ways, how, how, do, we, how do we overcome that? One way is through gratitude. Really hard to be angry with someone when you're expressing gratitude. When, when I'm driving on the Bay Bridge and someone cuts me off, and, and the first response that I have is I want to get really angry with them. Ah, oh, no, thank you. Thank you for being my teacher, for showing me how impatient I am. Right? So there's always this opportunity to practice gratitude, to transform whatever negative mo- emotion we are experiencing, there's always that possibility of transforming that into something positive. One of my favorite teachers, um, Garchin Rinpoche from the Tibetan lineage, he talks about his benefactors of love and his benefactors of patience. The benefactors of love are those people in our lives that, gosh, that just lay it on us, that just give us a love unconditionally, that are so easy to love, so easy to want to do things for, because they're always doing things for us. We just feel that unconditional love. But our benefactors of patience are those that don't do that, (laughs) are those that push our buttons, are those that um, maybe hate us, may dislike us. But he said those are benefactors of of, um, patience are our best teachers. And in fact, we owe so much gratitude to them because they teach us about not only patience, but also about compassion. Because someone that is in possession of that much hatred or, or that much negativity, you, you, have to have, you have to generate some compassion for them because they're not happy. And so our um, benefactors of patience are not only our our best teachers because they teach us patience, but they also teach us compassion because we all want to be happy, because we all want to feel loved. So, um, Namo Amida Butsu really teaches me or allows me to express uh, this gratitude for both my my benefactors of, of love as well as my benefactors of patience. Um, actually, I would really like to open it up for discussion. I know we have time, but I just I don't want to give like little nuts and bolts uh, questions. So I, I'm I'm curious. Questions so far, or um, can I ask you questions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So how in your practice, in your particular practice, how how do you reconcile? How do you address this issue of your um, uh, benefactor of patience? I know how you bene- address the benefactor of love, same way we all do. Mm-hmm. How do you address the benefactor of patience? For myself, it's just as you described. It's like yeah. catching the moment where at first the uh, anger and the aversion arises. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, uh, <laughs> so for me, it's an odd place, but it comes up at the gym. Mm, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Because... I thought you were full of all these endorphins in the gym. I thought you were like on the happy drug in gym. It doesn't necessarily help. No. It just amplifies anything. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, But we share the equipment in a a Uh circuit, and not everybody likes to share. And at first, I was was feeling very righteous and had Uh righteous indignation. And I was like, well, 
I'm just teaching them how to behave properly. Uh -huh. Very politely explain to them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, but I never felt good about it. And then, mm -hmm. um, and then I was thinking about it a lot. And I was like, oh, why can't I just offer it to them? Mm -hmm. you know? And so the next time I encountered that situation where it was like, it was my turn, I was like, oh, I just, you know, they don't, they don't want to, you know, do that. I'm, I, I'm not, it's, I'm not, it's not my place to like be teaching them anything. Mm -hmm. um, they're not asking me to teach them anything. Mm -hmm. So I said, please, just continue on. I'll just go around mm -hmm. and go do something else. Yeah. Great. It really, it, it totally changed the feeling inside of me. Instead mm -hmm. of having this like subtle, mm -hmm. it's just like, ah, very relaxed. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you had a fundamental shift mm. in perspective. Yeah. 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 Oh, very good. Mm. Good girl. Anyone else want to share? So my, my teacher that I just quoted, Gretchen Rinpoche, he was um, he he grew up in Tibet, and when the Chinese communists um, invaded or you know, attacked Tibet, he was taken prisoner for twenty years, and. Um, he transformed his experience. He transformed his perspective. So he came out like the most amazingly loving man I have ever met. Just this amazing human. While he was in prison, he was forced to uh, make bricks. And so he treated it as an offering, just like mm -hmm. you were saying about the gym equipment. Instead of feeling victim, he treated it, I'm doing this as a gift to these people. When he... He and his fellow prisoners were starving to death, and he was forced to cook for the guards and their families. He did it with so much love as a gift, transforming his experience. Yeah. Um, everything he did, he, he treated his time, his 20 years in the, in the prison as... Uh, like he was meditating in a in a cell uh, in a, a cave. Mm. That's how. So he meditated. He practiced secretly because it wasn't allowed. But he can he he believed and considered that he was in a cave. And so he was expressing gratitude for every day, every moment he could practice. Amazing, huh? So it is. It's a fundamental, radical shift in our perspective. That's what that's what awakening is. That's, that's what freeing ourselves of all of these negative habituations is. A fundamental shift in perspective. How do we do it? How do we do it? How do you do it? And so how? how I'm for well, no, I'm, I'm telling you for, from my tradition. I, no, I'm asking because I'm curious about your... So my tradition is we practice gratitude. Every moment, every moment, we look for an opportunity to, to offer our gratitude for where we're at, why we're here, every moment. So in our tradition, we do, um, every month we do a, a service called Shotsuki Hoyo, where we remember the people, the, the members of our temples, the 110 years old, who have passed during that month. So every month we have a Shotsuki Hoyo. Every month we read the names. There's usually about 100 and 150 names before our service of, well, our, our temple's been around for a long time, so we have a lot of names every month. But, and then when someone dies again th this year, they go on the Shotsky Hoya list. So every month, every service, we have an opportunity to say, oh, thank you. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here in this fabulous, wonderful temple if it wasn't for these people that came before me, members that built and, and continue to support the temple. So in our practice, that's one way, through collectively coming together and remembering those. We have, um, it's not ancestor worship. It is just profound gratitude for understanding that I'm, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't a whole chain of people before me. It's expressing gratitude for any situation, of seeing the situ anything that looks like an obstacle is really an opportunity, a stepping stone. Yeah. Um, a stepping stone to learn about myself. Not, not about someone externally, but an opportunity to learn about myself. To take the focus which we're so geared to and we're, we're so culturally habituated to look out and turn it into myself and say, oh, okay, 
this is why I got upset about this, or this is what I'm holding on to, this is what my aversion is, or this is why I'm, my delusion that I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah? So every day, every, every moment is an opportunity to generate this awareness, and we generate that awareness through gratitude, through saying Namo Amida Butsu, which is a response from Amida Buddha. It's not, uh, it's, a, it's expressing gratitude toward Amida Buddha, toward this, Amida Buddha is this concept of boundless wisdom and compassion that surrounds me and embraces me at all times. I think, you know, in our traditions would be, we call it awareness, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I was yesterday listening to a talk by, uh, about what's called energy anatomy by mm-hmm. a, a woman called um, Carolyn May, May, Mace? Mace? Mace, Mace, yeah. And she was saying, also speaking about gratitude, saying, you know, gratitude is the best attitude. Mm-hmm. And I and I mm-hmm. wrote it on you know you can have a message on your email you know mm-hmm. this, and I immediately put it into mm-hmm. this, now mm-hmm. my message on my email which mm-hmm. comes up and um, and she was speaking about you know that whenever you 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 know you meet an obstacle in your life in terms of difficult people or difficult situations or whatever mm-hmm. to just ask yourself you know what quality am I kind of developing through mm-hmm. that so-called obstacle? You know, mm-hmm. what's the quality now which it is asked for either patience, you mm-hmm. know, or acceptance or equanimity or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, <coughs> just see it. She, calls, she speaks in terms of God, you know, that God has sent you that opportunity basically, you know, mm-hmm. so you can cultivate that quality mm-hmm. and, and have gratitude for that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that really immediately, you know, of course, shifts things, you know, on an energetic level. And I experienced that too, of doing that a little bit in the last retreat, you know, which we were on. As soon as you, you know, look at whatever happens with, with gratitude, internally, there's a shift there. Mm-hmm. And there's much more capacity, you know, to just really open. I mean, it opens mm-hmm. you up, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It opens the, the tension, that contraction. It, it opens, opens your heart. Yeah. Isn't that why yeah. we're all practicing? Yeah. Isn't that the whole point yeah. of this practice? Is to go through mm-hmm. life with the most open, fearless heart we can have. Yeah. So yeah, it really works it, uh, very, very... It's like, it, it's immediate, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you can remember it. but Exactly, and, and, exactly, yeah. yeah. It's but, you know, that's what the practice is. So yeah. if you are enmeshed in this practice, yeah, that's... You train yourself to remember mm-hmm. that, you know. Mm-hmm. Like we would say, we train ourselves to remember, you know, to be aware mm-hmm. whenever we get, you know, drawn into identification and contracting around any mm-hmm. kind of concepts and ideas about what it is, to remember it, you know. And then mm-hmm. as soon as you remember it, you are not anymore, you know, identified. And right. then... And then, you know, you can act from, from wisdom and compassion. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I can very much relate to it. And gratitude is the best attitude, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple um, writers that, have, uh, that we have that uh, talk about, um, that I'd like to share with you a little bit about... Um, this is from David Matsumoto. He's a, a, a Shin priest over in Berkeley, actually. Um, so when he talks about the primal vow of Amida Buddha or Amitabha Buddha, so Amitabha Buddha made this mythological um, Buddha in the cosmic realm, uh, made this 48 vows. Basically, all the vows boil down to everyone. Everyone has this potential to wake up. Everyone has this potential to open their heart. And so the primal vow of Amida Buddha declares, I cannot attain enlightenment unless all attain enlightenment with me. The vow expresses the highest ideal for all people. When we entrust in that vow, when we surrender, which is what we do in our tradition, when we surrender, we awaken to the boundless wisdom and compassion of life. Then we see no difference between ourselves and others. We will realize the interconnectedness of all beings. When others suffer, we will suffer. Our happiness can only exist on the happiness of all. This is what the Buddha teaches us, that the mind of wisdom and the hearts of loving kindness find fulfillment in compassionate activity. So we, I, I like to say there's an expression, um, perfect makes practice. So 
In a lot of the Buddhist traditions, this practice makes perfect. In our tradition, it's perfect makes practice. You surrender yourself to this perfection, this boundless wisdom and compassion, and it affects how you think, how you behave. And so we don't necessarily take precepts in the same way that you take precepts, um, which is so beautiful and I've done many times. But in our tradition, when you sincerely, when you entrust with a sincere heart and mind, the precepts, they spontaneously, naturally happen. You naturally don't want to harm others. You don't want to uh, become intoxicated. You don't want to, to engage in false speech. When you truly entrust to this boundless wisdom and compassion, that's, that's what happens. So we like to say practice, uh, perfect makes practice in our tradition. And one more, um, this is from uh, D.T. Suzuki, who was a, a pretty famous Zen um, practitioner and towards the later part of his life um, embraced uh, Shin Buddhism. He said, the pure land is not millions, of, millions and millions of miles away in the West. It's right here, and those who have eyes can see it around them. And when Amida is not, and Amida is not presiding over some ethereal paradise, but his pure land is in this very earth itself. Being in the pure land is to discover the pure land within oneself. Amida is our innermost, deepest self. And when that innermost self is revealed, we are born into the pure land. So saying the Nambutsu is not um, an external deity. We're not saying that to an external deity, but really we're awakening to our own Buddha nature. Um, questions? I'm surprised you're not. This is kind of a trippy um, tradition, actually. For I'm surprised you guys don't have questions. Um, I think it's trippy. Um, I, I love it. I think it's incredibly beautiful, and it all makes sense now. But when I was first getting into it, I'm like, what is this? Okay, you say Nambutsu, but you don't really take precepts. You, and then it's like the it's like I was saying. It's the tightrope that becomes the four by four that becomes the wood path, that becomes the cement ground. Yeah. It's a very nice um, way of, of putting it, you know. I mm. can really relate to that, isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about <clears throat> the temple and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the stupa and the relics that are there. Yes, everyone is invited to see the temple and the relics. So the temple, uh, like I said, was founded by Japanese immigrants in 1898. Um, they sent for their priests or senseis, and um, they came. And so we have this long history of, of temples, uh, of priests ministering to... Um, I was actually telling uh, folks at tea time that Japanese temples, first the Chinese temples, then the Japanese temples, by 1900 there were 400 Buddhist temples on the West Coast. Pretty amazing. Yeah. 400 at 1900. So there were all um, ethnic temples. It was all the Chinese and Japanese immigrants. But the Buddhism was, was really flourishing. Um, but closed. Very, very closed. Not, not open. Um, so our temple... Um, very, very traditional Japanese-American um, temple. A lot of Japanese first-generation, second-generation Japanese immigrants. Um, then World War II happened, and all of our um, uh, temple members, all of them, were sent to um, the concentration camps. Uh, and all the priests were sent to one particular camp, Topaz. Uh, they were separated, the intellectuals, the priests, um, and it was in, in this camp that, um, in the middle of the war, they all got together and they decided to change the names. Our, our, our temple was originally called the Honganji Mission. Our, our mother temple in Kyoto, Japan, is called the Honganji, Nishi Honganji, the Temple of the Primal Vow. And uh, so they changed the name to Buddhist Churches of America. They, it was that idea of fitting in, not being so foreign. Here they were picked up because they were considered alien. And so this is, I think, an, not I think, it was an attempt to fit in, uh, to blend in. So 
when they came back, when they were released from the, the um, camps, they came back, they, they didn't have homes, they didn't have businesses, so they came back and lived in our temple, in all the temples actually throughout the United States that we had uh, Shin temples, and um, started rebuilding their lives. We, in our, you go to our mother temple, it's all tatami mat, you sit on your knees. Um, in our temple we have wood pews, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was, again, that attempt, right? They didn't want to... So I'm, I'm kind of telling you this so you don't freak out when you come into our temple. <laughs> um, so we have wood pews. We actually have an organ that still creeps me out because of my Catholic upbringing. Um, we also have a piano, though. So I love singing the... the we have uh, gathas, Japanese um, gathas. Gathas um, are basically Buddhist songs. Uh, we have a lot of children. We have a Dharma school. So they started, you know, you go to our mother temple in Kyoto. It services every morning at 6, 5.30 uh, during the summertime. Um, but in America, especially after the war, it started being the Sunday thing, right? So again, it's that attempt to fit in. So when you come to our temple, it looks like this massive shoebox on the outside. You wouldn't even know it's a Buddhist temple until you walk in and walk up the stairs. And it's this amazing Nijin or altar Everything was imported from, brought over from Japan. Absolutely gorgeous. I give tours uh, fairly regularly to architectural um, classes. Uh, there's instructors bring them because it's just, if you like Japanese architecture or art, it's really, really fabulous. Um, and then in, um, actually before the war, in 19, uh, late 1920s, we received uh, the relics from the Royal Court of Siam, which is now Thailand. Uh, they had a relationship with our um, mother temple in Kyoto, and so they gave our mother temple the relics. Um, one was a relic of the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha. One was a relic of, um, his, and then his two major disciples, Mogliana and Shariputra, who figure predominantly in the Pure Land Sutras. So we tore our temple down, built a new temple, and we have a classic Indian stupa atop our temple. It is the wildest thing to be, in, to be standing on the roof, actually, and this is beautiful Indian stupa, and on either side are these massive apartment buildings. Uh, it's just wild to have that in San Francisco. Everyone is welcome. What makes the stupa so amazing is that you can go in and actually see the relics. Um, oftentimes when you go into stupas um, in India or Asia, the relics are at the, the bowl, the, the top, and then they usually have a very large uh, statue of a Buddha as you walk in. But ours, we have a, a nice little butsudan, um, and the relics are right there. So everyone is, is welcome and invited to come. We have people from all over the world come because you're just right there with the relics. It's pretty exciting. Um, and just such a gift to be able to... Uh... I have some problems with it, though. I mean, you know, Buddha said... He, he didn't let anyone sculpt him. He didn't let anyone paint him. He didn't let anyone draw him because he said, it's not about me, it's about my, te my teachings, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first sculpture, or the first, uh, yeah, actually, um, the um, sculptures were when Alexander the Great thought he was conquering India, but actually was Northeast India. They settled there. What are the Greeks known for? Right, they sculpture. So the very first Buddhas, when you go to uh, uh, the National Indi uh, uh, National Museum in Delhi, just rooms and rooms and rooms of these Greek-looking Buddhas. <laughs> that was the first first depiction of Buddha, were these uh, from from the Greeks for that settled there. Some even have mustaches, you know. Yeah, ours yeah. ours actually has a mustache. Yeah. So we have uh, like an Apollo Amida Buddha kind of mm. looks Apollo-ish, <laughs> yeah. um, but. Um, so yeah, so we have this fabulous, so, so that's my quandary a little bit is that, uh, so immediately after the historical Buddha died, his relics were distributed and stupa worship kind of became the, no, not kind of became the norm there. Mm -hmm. There was a great deal of stupa worship. So people would go to these, uh, you know, they miss their teacher. They uh, were humans, we're not awakened yet, and we still cling and grasp. So we would go to these stupas. Right, because that's where our teacher was. That's what represented awakening, enlightenment, and so, you know, I, I think it's so awesome that we have this that we could share with everybody. But I also had to keep in check, like, how awesome is it? Um, you know, not too awesome. I don't want to be so attached to it that, um, you know, I forget what the teachings are really about. 
So it's a really wonderful um, temple at the corner of Pine and Octavia. Um, the Catholic school across the street from us actually looks like a Buddhist temple. We don't. But if you look up, you can see the stupa on the roof, and that's where you know you're in the right spot. And um, I, I have a biz, business card with my email. I'd be happy. We, we're open from uh, 9 to 5.30, but we can't always give. We One of us has to be there to give a stupa to our, our office manager. Um, can't do that. So um, I'm happy to give anyone tours. Uh, we love having the, having mm-hmm. when you bring your, your groups of folks on the walk, the hunger walk. It's mm-hmm. just such a treat to be able to open the stoop and share that with everyone. Yeah, it was really quite yeah, an experience. Yeah, maybe a few words about that experience, because that's how I think we all got connected mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Through Actually, through I knew, how did we meet? We met, yeah, well, what's the, originally, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so the walk, everybody know about the walks to feed the hungry by any chance? Anybody who doesn't? Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, Buddhist Global Relief is a Buddhist charitable organization. We have brochures here and on the... Brochures mm. here focused on chronic hunger and malnutrition, and, and we have um, projects around the world helping people in all kinds of ways, um, not just with food aid, but also with you know, uh, being given the support to uh, lift up out of poverty in solidarity with people who are struggling mm-hmm. with food security and um, maybe lack of education or opportunity or you know, there's a whole host of things that we, that we address. The main fundraising for that organization is the walks to feed the hungry and so in California, we started two years, well, we started three years ago in San Jose, and um, then we uh, now have uh, done two in a row in San Francisco, and uh, the organizers of the walk wanted to do a pilgrimage uh, kind of model, so we went from temple to temple, mm-hmm. and that's been really enjoyable, and that's how we just kind of, mm-hmm. we found you, and we asked if you'd be willing to have this group of pilgrims come in, whoever they are, wherever mm-hmm. they come from. They don't have to be Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And you were so gracious and, um, and kind. And um, I, it, was, it was such a, a beautiful experience to come into this gorgeous temple and, um, and experience some of the practice because they, they led some chanting mm-hmm. and and uh, hear about the history of this temple, and then everybody got a chance to go up to the stupa and pay respects to the relics. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. It, we, love, we love having you. So thank you. Thank you for bringing your group. I have a question mm-hmm. about the, the relics. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm just curious, but um, it seems like the... During, when did the relics come from Thailand? So, actually, you know, PBS just did this series on how we got our relics. Oh. Um, it's called the it's called Bones of the something that Bones Carl? of the Buddha. Bones of the Buddha. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and the the unfortunate thing it was it's uh, the the program is is um, it it documents. The relics, basically, that we ended up with part of part of them that went to Thailand, but it's from the British colonial colonial perspective. So they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, let's tear that stupa up. Let's 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 verify that that's really gold and jewels." And so, so basically, when when Buddha was cremated, his relics were distributed. Um, some some sutras say uh, sixteen, some say eight um, different clans. His clan, the Shakya clan, received a set. Um, they built a very modest stupa. And then when Ashoka came in, King Ashoka, several hundred years later, he converted to Buddhism. And the first thing he did was build these beautiful stupas on top of the existing stupas. He also made these beautiful um, columns. Um, so that's how we know that this is where this happened. This is where uh, he, at, at um, Bodhgaya, at Kushingar, where he died, at Bodhgaya, where he became enlightened, um, at all the, the major teaching spots. He made these, he put these 
beautiful, beautiful columns. But he also built over-the-top stupas on top of the existing more humble stupas. So when the, the British came in and, and colonized um, India, the first one of the first things they did was rob the temples, the Hindu temples. I, I've had people come up uh, from India um, to look at the, the stupa, and they, they just recount how their temples were just desecrated. Basically, anything gold, fine jewels, was stolen. And you can probably see a lot of that in the British National Museum. Um, that's where a lot of it is. Um, so anyway, this, this, they, PBS did a documentary on um, this gentleman who um, bought a piece of land. He's a British man, bought a piece of land. It just happened to have a stupa on it. And um, he hired a bunch of Indians to basically cut a hole smack down the middle of the stupa looking for Ashoka's jewels and um, so that what was down below further was actually this casing inside were the relics and the the rest of the show documented how they um, confirmed that indeed um, these were the relics of the historical Buddha that belonged to his family's um, stupa and because there was a lot of political shenanigans going on and um, at that time they gave the relics to India from that particular um, stupa. And so, uh, to, and they gave the relics to um, Thailand, excuse me, which was in the Royal Court of Siam. And the Royal Court of Siam distributed, not all of them, some of them, political favors as well. I'm sure our, our temple was very aggressive in um, yeah, accumulating. Was that? 19, that was 1930. Um, so, so it was 1929, 1930. Of like Thailand and Japan not probably having the most friendly or, or yeah. relationships being a little... But anyway, that, that's interesting. I mean, um, I it, It's worth checking out. That PBS yeah. special is really worth... We're going to be doing a, um, a, a program uh, uh, with involving that program. Thank you, Carl. Um, and discussion afterwards and a visit to the stupa and really looking at what this all means. What does it mean to have relics above us? I and think it's on, the, on, the, it's on YouTube, this Is this that program. on YouTube yeah. now? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Since a year or so. Yeah, it's been, yeah, a, yeah it came out mm -hmm. last year. Yeah. But I just wanted to point out this other thing that you might have, you probably heard of it, but they did um, this art show of, of Japanese that were interred, mm -hmm. I mean, inter interned. Mm -hmm. Did you hear about that? Well, there have been a, actually a lot. A lot of our temple members, we still have one temple member that actually survived uh, Hiroshima and um, traveled. So, it's amazing the the wealth of folks. So yeah, I, they they have a traveling. Um, okay. And there was one at UC Berkeley too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to recommend. I mean, apropos of um, obstacles, I remember going to this. There was this um, art art exhibit mm -hmm. of artwork that it, Japanese did while they were interned yeah. in these camps, and a lot of it would be like they would just find some object in Topaz or mm -hmm. uh, Manzanar or someplace, and they just made the most like breathtaking art with yeah. it. I mean, it was so like, you'd see, you know, you could, just, it was just so amazing how these people worked with their, you know, imprisonment and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I wanted to recommend yeah. you look at the book. Thank you. Yeah, there's actually quite a few books about the art from the camps, <laughs> and I, I don't know if it's still at UC Berkeley or was it the, what's the other museum, uh, California, um, in Berkeley, not not so uh, the natural Californian is one of those two that had an exhibit. Pardon? Museum of California. Yes, thank you. Oh, in Oakland, thank you. Um, this would have been. I saw that the American Museum of Crafts. So mm. This would have been the the book and the exhibit would mm -hmm. have been like going on a like Smithsonian type mm -hmm. tour. There, there is something about um, for me being in the presence of these folks that experienced so much adversity yeah I mean to be to be born and raised here and, and to be told to pick up a newspaper and find out you have 24 hours to pack one bag one one piece of suitcase to go meet at Tam Faran which was a dust bowl and get on a bus and not know where you're going how long you're going to be gone for 
And, you know, I have Jewish groups come up to the, we have an interfaith thing going on with a couple of Jewish groups. And when they come up to the stupa, they, we talk about the experience of the camps. And they said, our, a lot of our old seniors, they don't have any pictures of themselves or their families. Because when you are told you have one suitcase, the last thing you're going to do is pack, pack photos. Mm -hmm. So they burnt a lot of them because they didn't want to leave them behind for people mm -hmm. to rummage through their photos. Mm -hmm. So many of these folks don't have baby photos, grandparent photos. And the, the Jewish groups are telling me it's the same thing with them. They have no photos because of the camps. So um, for me, it's just like to be around someone who's practicing wisdom and compassion, who's practicing gratitude. It just, you know, that, that, that two by four is definitely a road. It's definitely a, a cement path for them. And it's so inspiring to be in their company and and, and watch how they transform everything in temple life, everything that we do um, into this open heart of, of wisdom and compassion. I'm very inspired and, and very grateful for the, the, the folks that, that raised our temple up and that are still alive. There's not a whole lot of them now because the war was 45, so they're getting pretty old. Hmm. Yes. Uh, I'm going to share a quick story um, related to the, the breaking of the stupa. Mm -hmm. So um, I visited Nepal once, mm. and in Kathmandu there are these two huge ones, mm -hmm. uh, stupas, Bodhnath and Swayambhunath. Mm -hmm. And um, in, the, in the guidebook it said that uh, invaders from, from uh, Mongolia or Arabia, they, they came and they broke, it was broken multiple times, people looking for gold is mm -hmm. buried inside the stupa. And when, when we read that, uh, my wife started laughing suddenly. And so I asked her, why are you laughing? And she said, uh, they came looking for the gold, but they, they missed the real gold. Yeah. Yeah. Right absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Maybe, you know, uh, we should maybe um, end with a, mm -hmm. with a, with a chant. If that's okay. Yeah. And thank you so much, you know, for coming. Thank you to come and join us. And I hope we see you again because I, as Andusik and myself, we are preparing, isn't it, a day long on climate change? With we yeah, we're going to be doing to something together some in nice retreat. Places, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw the emails going around. That that would be awesome if we can pull that off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And if you ever make it in the Plaza Ville area, you're very welcome to visit Thank us you. There. I'm so excited yes. to hear that Maybe you guys have a... I would, that. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. Okay. You. So I'd like to close... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.